Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. In 1877, arch colonialist and mining magnate Cecil Rhodes wrote in his Confessions of Faith, it is our duty to seize every opportunity of acquiring more territory and we should keep this one idea steadily before our eyes that more territory simply means more of the Anglo-Saxon race, more of the best, the most human, the most honourable race the world possesses. In 1909, Judge Rantoul of the King's Council delivered a speech in Bishopsgate entitled The British Empire, Its Greatness, Glory and Freedom, in which he told stories of criminal aliens, the Russian burglar, the Polish thief, the Italian stabber, the German swindler, people whom this country would be glad to be rid of and who'd been practically kicked out of their own. In the matter of alien immigration, he said, empire should be placed before party advantage. In 2013, then Home Secretary Theresa May launched a campaign to send fleets of vans into ethnically diverse areas of the country bearing the slogan, in the UK illegally, go home or face arrest. The operation was nominally to test the idea that people would depart voluntarily if they were made aware that there was a near and present danger of being arrested for being here quote unquote illegally. The following year, the hostile environment plan was rolled out. Suffice to say that the story of migration in Britain is not a simple calculation of who arrives and who leaves, but how the creation of the border, how the carving out of legal categories of citizen, subject, alien, migrant, refugee, function as a form of statecraft, as a way of underwriting the broader goals of the British imperial project. All of this and more is explored in the book Bordering Britain, Law, Race and Empire, written by the academic Nadine L. Anani. Nadine is a reader in law at Birkbeck School of Law and co-director of the Centre for Research on Race and Law. And she's kindly joined me here today to help unpack those histories for us. Nadine, hello. Hello. We so often talk about borders as something uh, geographical, sort of basic fact of where one country ends and another one begins. Uh, your work, of course, talks about borders as a set of more complex uh, political and uh, legal infrastructure. So how would you uh, describe what borders are, what borders do? Well, yeah, as you say, um, there's much more to borders than um, a separating physical construction. There are several ways to, to think about borders in the way that I, that I do in the book. One is, of course, as being constructed by law. So thinking about how legislation gives force to the border, how it allows the border to enact its violence, how it also shifts the border from something at the, not only something at the external boundaries of a state, but also internally through the use of legislation, as of course we will be familiar with in the context of the hostile environment. But I think the other thing that we need to think about in terms of borders is that they are something that we can also think about as being fictional in the sense that law is what gives them power and legitimacy and reality, or rather real implications and effects for those seeking to cross borders. Um, And what they also do is create nation states. So what I want to get away from is the idea that when a border is drawn, it is a natural delimiting of a particular nation space, but rather when a border is drawn, it also produces or creates the idea that a particular space that a nation state is a legitimately bordered nation state. And I think that's particularly important to think about when we're talking about Britain, because Britain, of course, um, was and and is an empire, an imperial entity, and one which used law in order to produce itself as something that looked like a a legitimately bordered um, nation state. And of course, in the book, I critique that move, that story. I say that indeed the the move to uh, draw a border around Britain in the course of the 70s and 80s was itself a colonial act, um, an act of colonial violence. So it's important to think about borders themselves as colonial violence. They're shifting and they're changing. Shape uh, happens in accordance with 
and in accompaniment with changes to law. And also borders themselves are racializing. So they also produce and change subjects and subjects' capacity to access places of safety, to access the basic means of life. You know, how I understand racialization is in line with Ruth Wilson Gilmore's idea of racism and racializing uh, processes is to think about borders as producing certain subjects um, as disproportionately vulnerable to harm and premature death. So, of course, as we know, those who uh, cannot cross borders or do not have um, certain passports um, and the, the documents required find themselves um, vulnerable to, to harm, both in their attempts to cross borders and also once they have crossed borders, you know, can find themselves confined, um, subject to destitution and also deportation and, and death. You write about um, Britain and specifically not the UK, uh, so so that's uh, not including Northern Ireland, as a young nation state, but an old imperial power. So I'm wondering if you could explain for us how the kind of shifting border policies uh, play a role in that shift from imperial power to nation state. Britain's uh, immigration, nationality, um, and indeed its asylum legislation has always shifted and changed according to Britain's imperial ambitions. If we think about the era in which Britain is witnessing successive defeats of its empire, and we're talking here in the six, about the 60s and the 70s, uh, leading up to the 80s, Britain is witnessing its empire uh, essentially facing um successful independence movements. Uh, it's losing the empire as a means through which to exert global power and influence and it and also um, economically um, to grow its own economy. And so it's looking for riches elsewhere, including um, at the European economic um, community. And so it makes the move uh, to define itself or to redefine itself as something other than first and foremost an empire, which up until this point had been extremely important to Britain. Indeed, if we think about the 1948 British Nationality Act, um, this was passed at a time when Britain wanted most of all to signal the strength of the British Empire, the power of the British Empire, uh, in particular because it was facing a move in Canada to define its own citizenship and subjecthood as separate to and not derivative of British subjecthood. And Britain saw this as a huge threat to the stability and sustenance of the empire. And so uh, fearing that other white dominions would follow, Britain passed the 1948 British Nationality Act. And in it, it uh, rolled out this um, status called Citizenship of the United Kingdom and Colonies. And this was essentially a repackaged um, version of British subjecthood. And the idea was to say, look, the empire is good and strong. Um, it propagated the myth of unity and equality, kind of saying the empire, uh, everybody who is a British subject is a citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies. Now, this measure was by no means an immigration measure. This It wasn't even contemplated by parliamentarians and by the government at the time that this was going to at any point, illicit movement towards Britain. In fact, the movement that was taking place was outward. Um, white British uh, people were being encouraged to um, move and settle in colonies like Australia and South Africa to increase the populations of white Britons and white populations there because these were colonial settlement um, projects. So, so that was the the mood or the atmosphere in, in 1948. Um, and then, you know, as I was saying, Come the 1960s, 70s, and Britain is facing the um, defeat of its empire, it moves to redefine itself as first and foremost a nation state. Um, and it does this through a series of legislative acts in the 60s, which culminated in 1971 with the Immigration Act of that year, which introduced the concept of patriality. And this concept had the effect of making whiteness intrinsic to Britain identity. Now, it didn't do this by saying, if you're not white, you can't come to Britain. 
What it did is through the effect or implication it had for those excluded from the concept of patriality. That's how it how it produced a whole um, mass of people who had previously had a right to come to Britain. Um, it, it excluded them from that. So patriots um, are those born in Britain or with a parent born in Britain. And these people were considered as having a right of abode and therefore a right of entry and stay in Britain. Now, if we think about it in 1971, a person born in Britain was 98% likely to be white. We can see straight away the effect of the concept of patriality was to exclude um, racialized colony and Commonwealth citizens from being able to come to Britain. We then had in 1981, the British Nationality Act, which was an important piece of legislation because it introduced for the first time a concept of British citizenship which was tied to a specific location, the specific landmass um, of, of Britain, of the British Isles. And the effect of this legislation was to also raise for the first time the spectre of this post-imperial territorially defined Britain. And the effect it has was to sever this landmass of Britain from the colonies and the Commonwealth. And this was done with a very specific purpose. And the, the Conservative Home Secretary at the time, William Whitelaw, said that it is time to dispose of the lingering notion that Britain is somehow a haven for all those whose countries we used to rule. And, and the way in which the British Nationality Act achieved this, this ongoing process of racial exclusion and construction of Britain as a white uh, nation was by linking British citizenship to the concept of patriality. So if you were a patriot, you were a, a, a British citizen. So essentially, this, this territorially distinct Britain had a concept of citizenship that made Britishness commensurate with whiteness. The um, immediate material effect this had was to mean that racialized colon and Commonwealth citizens who fell outside the um, definition of a patriot um, could, not, could not travel to Britain post-1971, didn't no longer had a right to travel to Britain because they were not patriots. Um, and they also were signalled as not belonging to Britain. They couldn't consider themselves as, as, as British. Um, and what it meant also is that it signalled that Britain itself was a white nation and that everything that Britain had plundered in the course of the British Empire belonged in Britain rightfully to people who were defined primarily, um, overwhelmingly, as white. And that's why I say immigration law should be, must be understood as ongoing colonial theft, ongoing colonial violence, because what the British Nationality Act in 1981 did is to finally seize, um, to appropriate all that wealth and infrastructure that had been secured through centuries of colonial conquest. And of course, what was enriching, continuing to enrich Britain and Britons. So citizenship, clearly a um, colonial endeavour from its inception. But I'm curious then about subjecthood, uh, this uh, pre-existing category that uh, defined the sort of direct rule colonial era. You cite 1905, the Aliens Act, as a key shift in what subjecthood constituted and how it was experienced by people in the sort of uh, colonial peripheries versus perhaps who were born in the you know, in the archipelago of Britain itself. Could you explain for us a little bit about what subjecthood entailed? The 1905 Aliens Act was was passed. Um, the British Empire was well established um, through the transatlantic slave trade and slavery. But it's important to, uh, to remember that the Aliens Act itself um, wasn't targeted at colonial subjects. The, the passing of the Aliens Act was, was, I suppose, the way I categorise it in the book, it was about protecting white British supremacy at home. Um, because, of course, at this time, um, Britain wasn't facing inward, inward movement from, from the colonies. So in the sense that Britain wasn't seeking to pass legislation that prevented racialized British subjects from entering Britain. What it sought to do with the 1905 Aliens Act, which was the first generalized, um, one of the earliest forms of, of sort of generalized immigration control, what it sought to do through that act was to prevent the arrival in Britain of poor Jewish refugees who were fleeing pogroms and persecution in eastern parts of Europe. And so Britain was seeking to preserve a, a domestic white British supremacy um, and 
but, but the key thing about this legislation is that although its target was not racialized British subjects, um, it mirrored in its method and its content aspects of racist immigration laws, um, which had already been adopted in British colonies to target racialized subjects. So what Britain did is essentially copied modes and methods of immigration from its colonies and kind of adopted this in the 1905 Aliens Act to prevent Jewish refugees from being able to come to to Britain. So it wasn't itself targeted um, at racialized British subjects. In terms of the the content of of British subjecthood, this isn't something that there's any clarity or agreement about among scholars, whether historians or um, legal scholars. There are and remain actually so many categories of, of British subjecthood and citizenship, which all have to do with the evolution and changes and shifts in Britain's imperial ambitions. And so, so essentially what the category comes to represent is British lawmakers' attempt to self-servingly define who belongs in Britain and who doesn't. And, and these interests um, shift according to um, whether the ambition is presently to expand the British Empire to signal its strength. So as we saw with the category of the uh, that was introduced in the 1948 British Nationality Act, uh, uh, the um, citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, this was passed at a time, this was introduced at a time when, when Britain wanted to signal the strength of the empire. But the interesting thing about this category is although it has a different name to British subjecthood, if, if, if you look at the parliamentary documents, Hansard, to the records of the discussions in parliament that were taking place at the time, the government is, is trying to make clear that this is not any different to British subjecthood. Um, it is simply a, uh, a more... Um, a euphemistic packaging of that, because then there's this reference by one minister of the idea that natives don't like the um, flavour of the terminology subjecthood. It, it's it's somewhat demeaning or insulting, and therefore you know citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies is is better. And then on the other side, you have people arguing, well, that has too much of a republican flavour to talk of citizenship. And so the reassurance was being made that this was really just subjecthood through the back door. You know, a different a different terminology. Now, it is true that the content of, of, of British subjecthood, one might say, in relation to the, the subjecthood or, or, or citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies, was the idea that, you know, you could move freely um, across the empire. But we can't even say that that was true across the empire, because as I mentioned before, uh, in places like Canada, in Natal, in Australia, there were consistent attempts, and, and indeed legislation was passed, um, to target racialized subjects, free subjects, free racialized subjects, right? Subjects of the British Empire, um, and they they were prevented from 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 traveling um, and settling in these places. Britain was always keen to not do that because, of course, were Britain to do that um, to pass legislation that was explicitly racist, i.e., said you cannot enter if you are racialized, if you're from this country, or if you um, you are black, if you are, if you are Indian, you know, so the kinds of things that we use, the kind of terminology and kind of racist and legislation that we use in, in, in some of the colonies, Britain was always keen not to do that, because that would, of course, reveal the lie of um, unity and equality of the British Empire. So that was seen as a risk for Britain to do. So it always turned its nose up at this. But of course, we did see them do that in the in with the 1905 Aliens Act, when it was targeting Jewish refugees. These were not, of course, its own its own subjects. And of course, we then see, as I was explaining earlier, in relation to the 1971 Act, um, there's then this move to introduce uh, legislation against um, racialized uh, subjects and citizens. The intention is, 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 of course, very clear that the legislation is about doing that. It might not use the term, but it simply invents a concept like patriality, which has the desired racialized um, effect. I'm really struck by your example in the book of the sign saying welcome home supposedly rolled out to uh, welcome Windrush generations back to the motherland in so many words. Um, that is a framing that we hear quite a lot that um, Britain asked very nicely of its colonies uh, please could you send people over to help us rebuild after the devastation of World War II and 
that becomes kind of uh, the symbolic moment of, I guess, unity against which the the flaws of, of modern day immigration policy are measured. So I, I was wondering kind of how uh, you go about uh, reframing the Windrush generation in your work. The Windrush scandal, which I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with, gave um, uh, a, a huge sort of opportunity for this myth to be continued that that the Windrush generation were welcomed in the post-war era to um, to come and work um, in Britain. This is really untrue. So this so it, it is it is true that people. Um, who had been and were being dispossessed by ongoing British colonialism and the devastating effects of British colonialism on their societies um, and their communities, did travel to Britain in the post-war era, seeking a, a better life for them and their families. And the reason that they could do this um, is the 1948 British Nationality Act. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that, that act was not an immigration measure, but it did um, enable British subjects to be able to, to, to travel to Britain. But this movement took lawmakers and took the government by complete and utter surprise. They were not expecting this movement and had no idea what to do when these people were arriving. They knew that they couldn't stop them, but they really wanted to stop them. Essentially, the government did everything it possibly could, short of passing legislation that would strip racialized colonies subjects and citizens from being able to travel to Britain. It did everything it possibly could short of that um, to prevent their arrival. So, for example, putting pressure on um, colonial governments. So, so putting pressure at the, at the source, trying to persuade them to either withhold travel documentation or to prevent, prevent people from traveling. They um, also uh, contemplated finding ways to send people back um, if they possibly could. They also left people completely on their own. So refused to provide um, help or support with housing or with securing work, securing employment. They refused to pass anti-racist legislation, even though they knew that people were being discriminated against in the workplace and subject to street violence. And, and when they tried to access, um, you know, leisure um, facilities, they neglected um, people in, who, who were, who were travelling um, because they felt that if any effort was made to provide um, support, this would act as just um, something that would entice more people to come. They wanted a more deterrent um, atmosphere. So so really everything was done to make life as impossible as possible for the Windrush generation. Um, and so it's particularly troubling that we have this myth propagated that people were welcomed. And the reason I think it's particularly important to recognise the truth of what was happening um, when the Windrush generation were arriving in Britain, not that it was a welcome or that people were invited, is because the Windrush scandal, when it then occurred post the 2014-2016 immigration legislation passed by um, Theresa May's Home Office and Government, what we see there is not a sudden exclusionary um, sort of aberration to the norm when the Windrush generation targeted, but rather simply another example or another instance um, in a long history of exclusion and uh, colonial violence um, that was meted out on, on the Windrush generation, not just, of course, after their arrival in Britain, um, but before. Um, so I think it's important to see the context in which the Windrush generation were arriving, including the 1948 British Nationality Act, as being as being a colonial context, as being context um, where Britain was an empire racially subjugating under a system of white supremacy, its colonies and the Commonwealth, um, meanwhile, targeting um, people who were also within Britain in, in the sort of in the metropole, um, also subjecting people to, um, to colonial violence um, in, in the domestic context as well. I'd like to talk for a moment about the acts in the 1960s, notably 1962 and 1968, that really start to reshape the terms of citizenship and thereby kind of reshape what whiteness means in that context as um, something that underwrites uh, who 
can and can't claim entitlement to the spoils of empire. Obviously, the uh, high priest of this moment seems always to be Enoch Powell of Rivers of Blood fame, uh, talking about freedom for the money of empire, but uh, penury and uh, violence for its people. Yeah. Um, so as, as I was saying before, Britain um, kind of held off uh, for a long time from passing legislation that would uh, curb uh, the movement of racialized people to Britain. But but they did do everything else, you know, taking non-legislative or more informal measures to try to prevent racialized um, people from coming to Britain in, in the 50s. But the 1962 Act, the, the, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962, was the first legislative, so formal legislative step um, that was taken to deprive racialized colony and Commonwealth citizens um, from, from access to Britain. And as I argue in the book, that's, that's also the first piece of legislation, which we need to understand as being about physically depriving people of access to wealth that was stolen from them in the course of, of colonialism that was then located on the British mainland. So yeah, the um, 1962 Act introduced a legislative change. Essentially, it retained the status of citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies, but it allocated the right of British subjects to enter Britain according to how their passports were issued. Um, so this was the the change that was introduced. You know, you can see there, of course, the, the fragility of British subjecthood, because certain subjects would be treated as aliens for the purposes of immigration control, whereas other subjects, um, depending on, on where your passport was issued, um, would be able to um, enter Britain. And the change that was made is that subjects would be exempt from control um, where they were born in Britain or Ireland, or if they held a British or Irish passport that was issued by either of these governments and not one that was issued by a dependency government, by colonial government. And so, of course, you can already see the, the effect that it would be predominantly white, British or Irish born subjects that would be permitted to enter, including those who had moved to settle in the colonies. They, they would be able to return and enter, go and come as they please. But that wouldn't be the case for people whose passports had not been issued by British or, or Irish government. We can already see that um, these exemptions sort of made the subject or the legitimate subject more white and, and alienated subjects who, who were racialized um, from being able to come to Britain. And that was the first piece of legislation that did that. But then, of course, we had the 1968 Commonwealth Im Immigrants Act, which continued this process. And the specific uh, context for the introduction of the 1968 Act was the entry into Britain of East African Asians who who did possess a British passport um, that was issued by the Kenyan authorities. And this movement was due to um, the policies that had been introduced by President Kenyatta that were discriminating against Asians in Kenya. Um, and of course, you know, we can talk about the colonial context for this, British colonial authorities bearing much of the responsibility for the divisions in Kenyan society, so with this piece of legislation, it was particularly targeting this movement of people. In legal terms, the 1962 Act wasn't sufficient because many of the people who were entering Britain at that time did have passports that were issued under the authority of the British government by the colonial governor in Kenya. And this meant that their holders weren't subject to immigration control. So essentially this kind of gap in the law led to the need for this further legislation need in the sense that the desired intention of legislation was to prevent the movement of this particular group of people um, who were fleeing persecution. We've discussed the introduction of uh, patriality as a concept of uh, underwriting uh, whiteness as belonging in Britain. Um, I would love for you to explain a little bit more about uh, why you call the 1981 Act the final act of colonial appropriation. The 1981 Act is the British Nationality Act. And this piece of legislation introduced for the first time the concept of British citizenship. It's important, I think, to recognise that this was the first time the concept of British citizenship was rolled out. Some scholars talk about the citizenship of the United Kingdom colonies as, as, a, as a form of British citizenship that was introduced in 1948. Um, but I think this is problematic for a number of reasons. And one is that 
you know, you can already see from the intentions of, of lawmakers at the time, as I was saying earlier, that, that this was really British subjecthood, but under another name, under a more palatable name. But also simply in its terminology, citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies, you can already see that there are two imagined or conceptual spaces in the sense that they're seen as as two geographical spaces, there's the UK and then there's the colonies. The other important thing to bear in mind about the status is that it was a move to seek to strengthen the British Empire and to signal its, its continuity and its importance. The 1981 British Nationality Act was the opposite of this in a sense. It was essentially signaling the end of the British Empire insofar as British subjects across the world were stripped of their belonging to Britain in in a material sense, because they were stripped of their right to enter Britain. Um, And it was was also an important symbolic move because Britain was signalled as being a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state, which was defined and separate to the remainder of its colonies and, and the Commonwealth. The importance of this particular piece of legislation for the purposes of not only geographically cutting Britain off from its colonies, but also making Britain into a white Britain or signalling that Britain is a white country and that uh, those entitled to be in Britain are are white people, um, is that this concept of British citizenship was built on the concept of patriality that had been introduced in 1971. So the 1981 Act by by linking the two made Britishness commensurate with whiteness because you had this territorially distinct Britain and then you had also a concept of citizenship built on patriality. And remember, as I mentioned before, patriality, a patriot is a person who's born in Britain or with a parent born in Britain, which when it was introduced in 1971, a person born in Britain was 98% likely to be white. So, so we can see already that continuation of the process of racial exclu- exclusion that is continued in, in the 1981 Act. And the other important thing to think about the 1981 Act is that it is an important colonial manoeuvre. So whilst it was signalling the end of colonialism or the end of the British Empire, it was itself colonial violence because it was an ongoing act of colonial theft. So what we had is this final sort of act of appropriation where all the wealth and infrastructure that had been secured through centuries of colonial conquest you know, essentially a, a wall was was built around it through the 1981 um, British Nationality Act, materially and symbolically significant act in that sense. Framing borders as an act of colonial appropriation stands in very much in stark contrast with uh, the myth or bogeyman, if you like, that you uh, outline as central to uh, border policy throughout uh, the last you know, 100 plus years, the idea of the unjustly enriched migrant. They're coming to uh, scrape and beg for the uh, boons of the poor laws. They're coming to steal jobs and uh, claim benefits and whatnot. And it always recalls the line from Ambalavana Sivanandan, we are here because you were there. So I, I would love for you to talk uh, a little bit more to explain us about that kind of interaction between uh, migration acts and you know who can and can't legitimately claim uh, public support. At the heart of uh, immigration policy, as you say, is this idea that that it is the migrant that is coming to steal jobs and to take what is not theirs. And the threat is to those who rightfully own the riches and the welfare and the infrastructure that is here. And, you know, what the what I try to do in the book is to challenge or rather invert that story by looking at the history of how Britain came to be the wealthy place that it is. So by charting the way in which colonialism, slavery were key to the industrialization and growth of Britain's capitalist economy, and to look at how Britain was built on the dispossession, theft of land and resources and people and livelihoods of racialized people in the colonies, and how the law then is used to legitimize this theft. So the immigration laws that I've discussed work to legitimize colonial theft by saying those who fall within the category of British citizenship are the rightful owners 
are rightfully entitled to the wealth and everything that was plundered in the course of British colonialism. And so actually, if you look at it that way, then those who are unjustly enriched, it changes, or our view of who is unjustly enriched changes. And indeed, our view of the migrant, the person with history of colonization, whether geographical, historic, or personal ancestral, actually becomes completely and utterly justified and entitled to come back to Britain, come back to Britain and take take what is theirs. So I think if we tell the, the true story about the emergence of Britain as a as an apparently legitimately bordered sovereign nation state, we would see that it isn't that, but in fact it is the spoils of empire. And this is how I how I talk about Britain as being the spoils of empire. Because usually when we're having the conversation today about you know, what might be rightfully and properly returned to those from whom it was stolen. It's kind of limited to a conversation around well, what's in the British Museum and who can make a legitimate claim to the return of kind of artifacts, cultural artifacts that were stolen in the course of colonialism. But what I want to do is kind of make that debate or that question much broader and actually think about Britain itself as the spoils of empire much more broadly thinking about its healthcare system, its welfare state, its transportation infrastructure, its cultural and educational institutions, you know, all of all, all of this, you know, thinking about um, all of that as the spoils of empire and then thinking about how law works to prevent people from being able to access um, what was stolen from them and to kind of try to think more broadly to challenge both the, 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 the idea of the unjustly um, enriched migrant and the idea of who is is, is entitled um, to the spoils of empire and what they are. Um, and then, of course, you know, in the book, I take this further to actually argue that the irregularized migrant and irregularized migration should be seen as anti-colonial resistance, because that's where we can go um, conceptually and, and practically in, 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 in some senses. If we, if we see the law as colonial violence and ongoing colonial theft, then we can reject the legal categories which continue to um, uh, uh, wrongly define um, who is entitled to access um, colonial wealth and indeed make certain individuals subject to harm and premature death in the way I was speaking before. Um, and we can actually we can we can shift the way in which we think and speak about migration um, as not something um, you know and, and migrants as not being not having to be grateful to be here or not having to ask for the recognition from the British state, but rather as themselves being entitled to, to access the, the wealth that was stolen from them. So how does this delineation of who uh, can and can't uh, consider themselves entitled to a sort of social wealth function in terms of broader patterns of capital accumulations or racial capitalism more broadly like what is what is the the function of uh, of those uh, those kinds of racial orderings yeah i mean so in the book when i talk about how britain came to be one of the wealthiest places in the world and also how Im immigration law is then deployed to exclude from its nas national project the very people at whose expense britain was built i think that it is that doing that is 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 a step towards kind of formulating an internationalist anti-imperialist kind of racial justice strategies which would help us to combat um, the kind of effects, dispossessing effects of the racial capitalist system as a whole. Because I think sometimes we're limited in the ways in which we talk about capitalism um, and racial capitalism um, because we're missing that historical narrative, you know, that is not just a critique on capitalism, a critique on global capitalism, but is um, sensitive to the, um, you know, the making of Britain, um, the making of the British nation state as being part of an, of a long and ongoing colonial process, you know, in the context of which colonial subjects who were dispossessed um, of resources and then of access to Britain were themselves intrinsic to its making, i.e. part of its, of its working class, part of the working class. You know, George Orwell wrote in 1939 that the overwhelming bulk of the British proletariat doesn't live in Britain, but in Asia and Africa. And for him, the British Empire was nothing but a, a mechanism for exploiting cheap coloured labour. And we can, of course, see the continuation of, of this of this um, oppression of the working class globally today. Um, and, and, and it's having its roots and its origins in, in, in racial capitalism as instituted in a process of colonialism. 
and of course, you know, the way in which this operated in the colonial era, you know, the movement of wealth, you know, from the colony to the metropole. So, for example, through the use of unrequited transfers, whereby the colony paid for its own exports, you know, or taxing colonial subjects. And um, so meanwhile, colonial economies shrink and the British um, economy grows. So I think it's important to, you know, think about how colonised populations were um, used in this way to grow and sustain the British economy and then and then see how that is juxtaposed um, with this narrative, this this um, powerful and, and, and you know, um, toxic narrative around the migrant, the racialized migrant as being, um, you know, the one who is taking from the mouths of the of the white working class, you know, rather than seeing the working class as being something that is not intrinsically white, but is but is a is a global, uh, you know, um, disproportionately racialized class. And that, and that we would be, you know, that we would do better to see those solidarities and to see the you know, historically, the way in which empire um, function to dispossess racialized people um, and indeed to pit, you know, parts of the working class against um, one another by introducing, you know, hierarchies, you know, racial hierarchies uh, through this um, uh, system of racial capitalism and, and white supremacy. Talking of pitting people against each other, I would love to press you more on the difference between uh, the asylum seeker and the migrant. And uh, you talk really fascinatingly in the book about uh, how the category of the asylum seeker formed through domestic and international law functions to invisibilise certain forms of colonial violence while simultaneously propping up um, current and former colonising powers as kind of moral authorities? You know, where this project actually started is thinking about the distinction um, between the refugee and the migrant and, you know, how, you know, this is less so today because of, you know, just how far to the right um, politics and... um, on migration have moved, but you know this idea that the refugee was somehow deserving because you know there's a criteria which is met and therefore access to rights, whereas anyone who doesn't fit uh, within a legal category doesn't meet the criteria of a legal category, then um, you know is it, any harm that comes to them is, is justified because you know they don't have the right um, to to be in Britain or to access the basic means of life. And so what I wanted to think about a bit is how these categories and how categorization in in itself is a mode through which colonial violence is enacted. The process of categorization makes certain people who fall outside of the category of refugee, for instance, or citizen, disproportionately exposed to to violence or, or to death. And so I was thinking about the role that law plays in legitimizing and producing this kind, this this racial violence, this colonial violence. And so challenging those legal categories and those distinctions is an important part of uh, applying to the law uh, theories of race and understandings of race and racialization and how it operates. And, you know, I trace this from the colonial era and, and talking about how important processes of categorization were for putting in place a system of, of white supremacy, for coming to know and own and conquer um, native populations and, and, and their lands. Um, and we see this, uh, this, this categorization um, happening in the law. So what I try to, to do is to look at the, um, the tension in immigration law, because it both obstructs movement, but is also the means through which legal status is granted. So, you know, um, we have to rely on these um, uh, categories, these uh, legal processes of recognition, because of course we want, um, as lawyers, for example, we want our clients, we want individuals to be able to be shown to meet the criteria and therefore um, have their lives improved or have it be possible for them to live their lives. But the problem is these regimes of legal status recognition have the effect of also legitimizing the claim that colonial wealth in Britain belongs behind its borders and it can only be accessed with permission of the British state. And so I think it's important to be able to 
um, challenge um, challenge that uh, that idea that uh, we should imbue uh, colonial authorities like Britain with the power to make that decision. And of course, we can draw parallels here with you know the way in which Indigenous people in say Canada, Australia have to. To, to submit to these rules and evidentiary standards of colonial legal systems to say that this land is is ours, you know, this land belongs to us, it was stolen from us. You know, you can see the same kind of pattern um, with immigration law to say, well, well, you know, uh, people with uh, histories of colonialism is, is seek to come to Britain and, 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 and access Britain have to then submit to the rules and evidentiary standards of British immigration law um, when they're seeking um, to, to make the case that they should be permitted to, to stay. And it's important to be critical of this because, you know, as we've been talking about the extension of British subjecthood, you know, whether in the form of asylum, whether in the form of citizenship, um, uh, you know, whatever status uh, might be being granted, um, it's it's always a colonial act that is underlying that. And although in the colonial era, British subjecthood was seen as this kind of superior category that, you know, that had all these civilizing benefits, um, um, you know, the reality of British colonialism was genocide, was was mass murder, was slavery, was the theft of land, was exploitation of people, of labour. Um, and it was all predicated on a system of white and specifically British supremacy. If we remember this context, then we can see all of these, these legal categories as themselves um, being iterations of this, of this colonial violence because the very existence of the category of British subjecthood, you know, wasn't 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 freedom. It was the opposite of that. It was a manifestation of violence. It was a manifestation of colonial violence. And we've seen very clearly recently, uh, well throughout throughout time, but but also recently, that whenever it suits the British government, it will simply treat its subjects as aliens for legal purposes. You know, whether that's um, and, you know, that's important because when you are treated as an alien, when you're evicted from the scope of legal status, you know, you are subject to devastating consequences, whether that's the, the impact of the hostile environment policy, um, to denying many of the Windrush generation and their children access to vital health care, housing, employment, you know, making them subject to um, uh, uh, deportation and death. But also, as we've seen with citizen deprivation of citizenship laws, where your citizenship is deprived on you, you're subject again to um, manifest harm. Uh, so I think it's important to 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 bear in mind that su British subjecthood takes many forms, and that we can see all these legal categories as as manifestations of colonial violence in the way um, they divide uh, people into groups of, of of people with rights of entry and those without, and the ones without are subject to manifest violence. I'm fascinated by how you talk about the EU and the European Economic Community, um, not as uh, some arch remainers would have it, as a kind of uh, riposte to an idea of a hard border Britain, this sort of more expansive, generous, uh, cosmopolitan state, but um, really as, as something that dovetails uh, very neatly into and as, is very much an extension of these uh, uh, projects of racial violence. Yeah, there's a chapter in the book dedicated to um, the European Union or rather the emergence of the European Union. And I do think that it's important to emphasise, as you say, that that the emergence of the European Union mirrored in many ways what was what we saw in Britain. So as I was describing earlier, the, the post-imperial, you know, Britain's attempts to kind of categorise itself as post-imperial and to pull up the drawbridge and say that all the wealth that was plundered in the course of colonialism belongs to Britons uh, understood as white. What you had in the European Union is other European powers pooling their resources and pulling up the drawbridge, you know, on a, on a, on a wider geographical scale saying we're going to close ranks at the European level and say that everything that we have plundered is now part of this protectionist block known as the European Community. And indeed, the European Union from it from the outset had its own, both had its own colonial ambitions, you know, with a, with a project known as Eurafrica. Um, and there's a great book by Peo Hansen and Stefan Jonsson on this, um, where, you know, its policies were, were set out as being about continuing the process of resource and labour extraction from, um, from, colon from colonised 
um, or previously colonized nations. Um, and there was also a att attempts um, made to accommodate the imperialism that was still ongoing among uh, um, member states of the European Union up to a point. Member states were allowed to have their colonial ambitions, but not if this meant racialized uh, subjects, um, you know, being able to move freely to the European Union. And, that, and that's where um, limits were drawn. Um, and, you know, I chart the, 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 the effect of Britain's movement towards um, the European Union, for example, as being very much um, part of um, or rather you know, part of the impetus for its for the immigration um, laws that I described earlier that it that it passed. You know, um, preventing racialized subjects and citizens from being able to access Britain. You know, this is something that the European powers wanted very much. But they didn't want racialized um, British um, uh, colony citizens and subjects to be able to enter the European Union. Um, and then I also chart, you know, some of the case law of the Court of Justice of the European Union, which um, never sought to challenge. Britain's exclusionary um, approach towards its own subjects, you know, and and when citizens, um, British uh, 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 subjects rather, who had been excluded from the patriality category, sought to rely on 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 their rights, or you know, sought to make an argument they had rights under European law to be able to come and travel around to move around Europe. So they sought to kind of make a case that they shouldn't have been. Um, denied British nationality, or, or rather, the, shouldn't have been denied um, the specific category that would enable them um, to come to Britain. The, the Court of Justice dismissed this and essentially said, you know, European citizenship is derivative of member state nationality, and so whoever a nation state says it's, it's national is it's national for the purposes of being a European citizen. So what it did is it essentially um, legitimised Britain's post-imperial lie that it was a sovereign nation state and that people that it had previously uh, colonized had no right to come to Britain. It legitimized that. And in doing so, I argue, it also constructed the European Union as its own, you know, white supremacist space. You know, so Britain was seeking to construct itself as a, as a white nation state, um, as a legitimately bordered white nation state. And, it, and, and, and in that sense, it was kind of this domestic space of colonialism, as, as I describe it in the book. And this was really mirrored or upheld at the European level um, whenever its law um, was challenged, whenever its um, restrictive nationality or immigration laws were, cha were challenged at the, European, at the European level. What affected Brexit and the reshaping of our relationship with Europe have on uh, migration in the UK? Rather, I should say, migration law. In the run-up to the UK's withdrawal from the European Union, we saw the way in which migration absolutely dominated the debate. There was very little about what the European Union had to offer to the United Kingdom or how the United Kingdom might benefit from its from being a member of the European Union. It was all about, you know, stopping free movement. Um, but but really the terms on which the debate took place weren't even always about free movement in the context of, you know, European Union citizens traveling um, to Britain or coming to live and work in Britain. Um, often, you know, the term migrant uh, was used to denote anyone um, regardless of whether they were a European Union citizen or not. And there was this sense that, you know, anyone who wasn't considered British, Brexit came to symbolize their expulsion from Britain. The reality was that Britain had always um, had a flexible opt-in, opt-out in relation to migration law and had always exercised this, you know, to enhance its security, its um, border restrictive capacity. Like, for example, you know, it was really keen to partake in Frontex, the Euro European border agency that um, patrols um, Europe's borders and turns back um, migrant boats. Um, I was really keen on all those restrictive aspects. And whenever there was something on the table that would enhance, you know, the rights of asylum seekers, for example, you know, the UK would opt out. So it already had a very flexible approach. But as we saw, um, you know, the kind of level on which public debate took place, um, there was this real license and legitimizing of of, of street racism, of, of a rejection of anyone who is deemed um, not British. And one of the really damaging 
effects of this, I mean, there are so many, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but one of the really um, harmful effects of, of, of Brexit was, I think, to legitimise and, and strengthen the way in which, for example, the hostile environment was policed, was so viciously policed. There was this, there was this licensing, this empowering of that violence of the border to be so viciously enforced by um, by the authorities at the border, internally within institutions, in terms of the um, enforcement of the 2014-16 Immigration Acts, which had rolled out the hostile environment. You know, there was also hardening in terms of how the citizenship deprivation laws were used, a real increase, a real spike in the number of people who were having their citizenship deprived. There was this reification of Britishness. You know, if, if you weren't British, um, or if you didn't have indefinite leave to remain, you were declared to be precarious, or occupying precarious status. You know, that was the result of a Supreme Court decision a case called Rapaya, which is really dangerous because it means that there are certain rights that person can't rely on, like the Human Rights Act when seeking to, to fight um, a deportation or a removal order um, or the denial of, of a renewal of a status. So I think, you know, that was one of, I think, the most damaging uh, impacts of Brexit was to, to, to sort of license or enable this really vicious enforcement of borders. And we've only seen a ramping up of that since then with the Nationality and Borders Bill, with consecutive home secretaries, with the treatment of channel crossings. You know, we've only seen a ratcheting up of that, of the of the rhetoric um, that was let loose during Brexit around um, the lack of entitlement of, 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 of people, migrants to, to, to be in Britain. That was um, both enabled by Brexit and also kind of has consistently been legitimised um, since on on the back of what happened with the UK's withdrawal um, of the European Union. So would you call yourself a border abolitionist? I absolutely do, um, 100%. But uh, I, I don't know whether it's the storyteller in me, but in the book, what I wanted to do, and I don't know if it worked, was to slowly carefully, meticulously, rigorously lead the reader down the path to an abolition. Like, you know, there could be nothing other than ending with this sureness, surety, whether that that the UK is not a legitimately bordered uh, sovereign nation state. Um, and that absolutely um, I am a border abolitionist, but I kind of wanted to let that happen for itself. So I, I think it's probably partly the storyteller in me, but also a sense that this was um, a strategy that could be adopted in the book to simply show it, not tell it <laughs> in that way. So I don't know if that comes across or not. I, I hope. What I'm wondering then is what we do in the meantime, like, right, that's the, that's the horizon. That's the utopian goal. And you uh, are very uh, forceful on the idea that uh, the law is, is a, is a project and a tool of racial violence, inclusion is a colonial act as well. So how uh, do we go about manoeuvring and creating spaces of a kind of abolitionist possibility within those acknowledgements? There's so many organisations um, already working on, you know, dismantling borders and also thinking creatively about how, you know, we do migrant support work um, we work with migrants, we build solidarities, and we also, you know, make sure that we are taking the cases of people, you know, legal cases of people who are uh, seeking status, you know, we're doing all of the things all at once, you know, whilst also thinking long term. I suppose for me, you know, one of the points that I tried to make in the book, because I was hoping to push for kind of thinking about long term anti-racist goals, not just short term. And so, you know, one of the things I take issue with, for instance, is in the wake of the Windrush scandal, this kind of argument that was often made about, look, um, you know, Windrush generation was citizens and we shouldn't, we should, we should treat them as citizens. You know, that's an unhelpful approach because it sort of says, well, okay, if you fall into the category of citizen, then you're safe. Um, we will make, we will advocate on your part. But, you know, what does that do for the people who don't? What does that do for people who are undocumented? What does that, people, what does that do for people who are regularised or forced to move in regularised ways? Or people who can't even prove, you know, they may be the Windrush generation, but can't prove that, you know, that they had a right to be in the country. 
Um, and it also masks the colonial violence at, at, at the heart of what was happening in 1948 when, you know, um, people were, you know, which was the act, of course, on which on, on the basis of which people moved um, in, in the Windrush era. So, so you know, it, although I'm, I'm still talking conceptually to you and I think you were talking about more action, I think it is about bearing all of this in mind when we are strategizing together about, you know, what and what no borders would look like or how we can achieve no borders in 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 the work that we do and you know part of the book is about shifting the mindset you know because i talk about law as the thing that teaches us who is entitled to access to resources and who isn't and it's about kind of trying to the book tries to put a different lesson across like actually if we look at the history of british colonialism and the formation of the british state we can't but see things differently. We can't but see that the law is um, is part of this colonial edifice, um, not separate to it, and that things like the Windrush scandal are not an exception. Um, things like Grenfell are not an exception. Um, things like deaths in police custody are not exceptional violence, but they're part, they're the norm. Um, and it's about joining these dots of, you know, what's happening um, globally in terms of racial violence and, and ongoing colonial violence and also what's happening in Britain. And I think once we start joining those dots and and having this more um, historically informed understanding of contemporary instances of colonial violence, um, we will be better able to 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 resist them and to organise um, against them. And I think that, you know, people know this, you know, the take up of the book by practitioners, for example, kind of they know better than everyone else. You know, they might be working within the system, but they know better than every anyone else the violence of the system. And they're desperate to do something about it whilst also recognizing that they need to take up these legal cases. But I think it's about kind of joining together. You know, people are working in practice. People are thinking more um, conceptually or doing sort of historical work on this. Um, and then also um, activist, activist communities as well. Um, and of course, media you guys uh, on that note of extraordinary trust frankly um, i think that's where we will have to leave it uh, nadine thank you so much for joining us i'm sure we could talk about this book for many more hours but sadly that's all the time we have thank you this has been navara fm i've been your host eleanor penny thank you so much for joining us and tune in again soon Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.